You are listening to the Draper Fisher Jurvetson Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Seminar, brought to you weekly by Stanford Technology Ventures Program at Stanford University School of Engineering. Now, the reason you came is not to listen to Tom do announcements, but to listen to Bob Sutton. Bob is one of our faculty colleagues here in the Department of Management, Science, and Engineering. He's also a key member of the Stanford Technology Ventures team, and he's one of the co-directors of the Work Technology and Organizations group here at Stanford. He's written some best-selling books on creativity and the knowing-doing gap, and he's working on another book that's going to annoy a lot of management and surprise the rest of us. So let's give a warm round of welcome to Bob Sutton. Bob, Thanks, Tom. Thank you. Thank you. Right, so I got to give a talk. There's like 100 college professors in this audience. Oh, I'll do the best I can. College professors are like the toughest audience on earth. Okay, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about, um, about some ideas about what a creative organization does. And this is a topic I've been sort of fretting over, studying and reading about for a good 15 or 20 years. And I'm going to talk about some of the ideas that at least based from my biased perspective are the most important if you actually wanted to have an organization that was creative. Something which actually may not be a good idea and maybe we can talk about that at the end. And uh, the main ideas I've published about creativity are in the book I published a couple of years ago called Weird Ideas That Work, but I'll also stray beyond that. And uh, let me start out and uh, describe the three ideas about managing creativity I'm going to talk about, sort of the headlines. The first thing, I've got a co-author named Jeff Pfeffer who's over at the business school and he always says that great organizations and great managers, like they don't do sort of really sneaky little things, they're masters of the obvious. And so the obvious thing I'm going to talk about, which sometimes doesn't seem to be quite so obvious, is we're going to talk about what creativity is and is not, since I think that helps us understand it and manage it. Then I'm going to talk about really the main idea of weird ideas that work, and actually the main idea if you look in the organizational innovation literature that organizing for creative work requires drastically different practices than it takes to organize for routine work. Something which many managers and um, other people say but don't actually seem to act on. And then the last thing I'm going to talk about, which is something that I keep learning about over and over again, for some reason creativity is the type of thing that managers, senior managers, um, managers at all levels like to talk about but uh, they seem to not actually um, get around to doing it. So we're going to talk about the notion that talking about creativity is not enough. Okay, so let me start out with this question of what is creativity, which seems like sort of like an obvious question. Maybe it's doing something new. But um, I have a doctoral student who's now a professor at UC Davis named Andy Hargadon, and Andy and I spent quite a few years fretting over this. In fact, he talks a lot about this in his new book, which is called How Breakthroughs Happen. And um, the thing that we came upon in every creative act we could look at, essentially, it was doing new things with old things. It's not like the ideas come out of thin air. It's finding some old ideas, some old concepts, doing new things with them, blending them together in new ways. And this is an incredibly simple insight, but it actually has a lot of guidance about what you should do and how you should organize a creative group or organization. And we'll get into that in more detail as we go along. And let me give you two extreme examples, sort of in terms of levels of complexity, to illustrate this point. 
The first one is the way that Play-Doh was invented. So I looked into the invention of Play-Doh for uh, my book, Weird Ideas That Work. And, and what we discovered was Play-Doh was invented, um, or at least made by a guy named Joe McVicker, who had a plant. It was a plant in uh, central Ohio that made white goo for removing soot from wallpaper. Uh, maybe some of the professors in this room are old enough to remember there was a point where uh, much of the heat in the United States switched from being coal-based heating, which was sort of dirty and smudging, to, um, to gas and electric. So the problem was that the smudge was going down and this market was shrinking. And the problem Joe McVicker had is, what did he do with this goo that was being made from his plant, this white goo? And he did what people tend to do, which is he called in industry experts who had a great deal of, deal of knowledge about sort of soot and wallpaper and all that sort of stuff. And they told them essentially to do a total quality management movement, get the thing more efficient, squeeze every penny out of it. Six Sigma would be the modern term. Um, but then things kept getting worse and worse until he talked to his um, sister-in-law, Kay Zufall. And Kay Zufall was a nursery school teacher. And she gave it to her kids to play with. And she said, this stuff is much easier for little kids to squeeze with their hands than the hard modeling clay. And she suggested um, coloring it and calling it Play-Doh, and the rest is history. He sold the plant to Kenner for millions of dollars some years later. So that's one example. And to give you a whole other extreme of complexity, there's a great case, some of you may know about, um, of the case of a guy named Andrew Wiles. Andrew Wiles was a professor who solved for Ma's last theorem. And there's a movie about it and a book about it you can um, look up. But the interesting thing about Andrew Wiles was that he stayed at home working in his study for eight years, eight years, and he didn't tell his colleagues what he was working on. In fact, they thought he went crazy and just had stopped being productive. And I could just see it if I wrote on my Stanford annual report, I've been in my room working at home, but I won't tell you what I'm working on. Essentially, that's what he did for eight years. Um, and, he, and even us academics would get in trouble. This is the advantage of the tenure system. He had tenure. Um, but what he was doing during those eight years was he was using the various work of the mathematicians who came before him as puzzle pieces to solve the problem. So even in the case where you have somebody sitting in a room by himself for eight years working on stuff, it's not like the ideas come out of nowhere. It's picking all that came before him. And to use the Isaac Newton phrase, the reason he could travel so far was because he was standing on the shoulders of the mathematicians who came before him. And to give you a couple of other examples I've got pictures for, and this is really sort of simple creativity that made huge bucks. I did some uh, consulting work with People Magazine about a year ago, and the most profitable thing they've done in recent years in People Magazine is a thing called the annual. What the annual is, you know when you see People Magazine in the store, they'll be like the best dressed, the best looking, the most intriguing, those sort of issues. What they do is they smash it all together and sell to you for, in a book for $10, no original content at all. That's an annual, and they've made a fortune on those things. So that's, that's one example. And another example, which has more technology in it, since this is a technology ventures program operation, is if you look at the iPod, um, they went from having no product to having the product out in eight months. And for those of you who know this story, um, most of it was not original except for the interface and the industrial design. It was nearly all off-the-shelf stuff, and that's how they could move so quickly. And in fact, I think this is an especially good lesson. If you want um, to have fast creativity, um, what, you don't sort of just lock yourself in a room and only think of your own ideas. Even in Andrew Wiles' cases, he's um, taking places from other 
um, ideas from other places, you treat creativity as an import-export business. That's how it happens fast. And that's also the reason why, and I think that that's one of the things that happens with ETL, perhaps accidentally or on purpose, one of the reasons I think Silicon Valley works so well is that there's, there's such sort of porous exchange of ideas, and this will be on videotape, but that's okay. Um, to quote our president, John Hennessy, one of the first things I ever heard him say when he was our dean was, um, one of the main services that Stanford provides um, Silicon Valley is it provides a place where people can come and break their NDAs or non-disclosure agreements and move ideas around Silicon Valley. So, uh, so that's sort of the, the first big idea is, is that uh, to understand what creativity is and in many ways what you need to do to make it happen is you have to have this, this notion of doing new things with old things, okay? So that's the first idea. Uh, the second one is the main idea of the book Weird Ideas That Work, which is the notion that practices that instill creativity or innovation are very often the exact opposite of what, what passes for great management practices. By the way, and I, maybe I'll get in trouble with some of my colleagues, very often standard MBA education, you bring in the total quality management or the Six Sigma consultants, they're often going to tell you to do what is exactly the opposite of what will get you to be innovative. And exhibit number one um, that I learned about in the course of my travels is many of you have maybe heard of the notion that um, one reason that General Electric was so successful under Jack Welch was they had this thing called a Six Sigma program where they would infuse quality in everything. Eventually, I ran into some folks from the research and development part of General Electric, and they said the way they were able to be innovative was essentially by ignoring Six Sigma completely because it wasn't possible to be innovative and do that stuff at the same time. Um, to make this a little bit more formal, if you look at the, and you also have this on your handout if you can't see it very well, if you look at the literature on innovation, and this is something, this is not a new idea, this goes back a good 40 years, we have hundreds, perhaps thousands of studies published on groups and organizations. If, if you look at um, the literature on innovation, there's this, a distinction that runs throughout it. <clears throat> Sometimes it's called exploration versus exploitation. If you look at what it takes to organize for routine work, you've got to drive out variation. You want every Toyota Camry, every McDonald's cheeseburger to be exactly the same. Um, you've got to see old things as old things. So if somebody is flying a helicopter, you don't want them pretending it's an airplane or vice versa. If they are operating on your heart at the Stanford Hospital, you don't want the surgeon pretending that your heart is your pancreas. That would like lead to a really bad operation, but it's what creative people do, and of course you would replicate the past. So if you want to, um, and the key idea, and this works for nonprofits when I show them as well, the key idea of, um, of organizing for routine work is the focus is on making money now, but if you want to organize for innovative work, you've pretty much got to do the opposite thing. And before I talk a little bit more in some details about some of those opposite things, I want to make two points that are really important. Um, the first one is um, that the last thing I would want to do is leave you the impression that innovation is always good and the more innovation the better. Sometimes in um, some corporations and in Silicon Valley we start acting like that. In fact, um, in many cases, the opposite is true. If you devote too much money to doing new things and don't cash in on old things, you're in trouble. The question is, what's the balance between doing old things 
and new things. And to give you sort of like a rough idea, if you start looking at the um, research and development budgets of organizations, um, some of our most successful and most creative organizations will devote, say, um, if you look at Procter & Gamble, which is getting a lot of press or being creative now, 3% of their budget goes to R&D. 3M, which is famous for being creative, 7% of their budget goes to R&D. Microsoft, it's 25%. Only in, in Big Pharma do you start getting above that. And of course, for those of you who know about Big Pharma, their marketing budgets are, of course, still bigger than their R&D budgets to get us to buy the same drugs over and over again maybe we don't need. Um, so, so that's an important point is that it, it's the balance between the two that matters. And I would never say the more innovation, the better. So let me dig a little bit more into two of the principles because I think they're really crucial for understanding what it takes to have innovation. The first thing you need to do is to enhance variation somehow so you can get those old ideas and do new things with them and recombine them in new ways. That's very much what it takes to, to do innovation. So things that look like failures, dead ends, are the lifeblood of innovation. And um, if you look, we've got uh, the, the entrepreneurship teachers here, and they all know, if you look at the failure rates for our local um, Silicon, Valley fin um, Silicon Valley firms, ask Vinod how often Kleiner Perkins is right. They're wrong most of the time. If you start with the number of business plans you, they look at versus the ones they consider seriously versus the ones they fund to get a Google, it's, it's, a, it's a story that's nearly all failure. And that's pretty much what happens, especially when you're doing something creative. And when you start telling CEOs of large organizations that the way they're going to be innovative is by failing more, they don't like to hear it. And to give you a little example of, of how this happens in one organization I know well, um, how many of you heard of IDEO product development, which has a lot to do with Stanford? IDEO is a product design consulting firm started by actually one of our professors, David Kelly. They've done everything from the first Apple mouse uh, to, um, to like snakes for, um, for movies, I mean mechanical snakes for the Anaconda movies, all sorts of products. And there's a little part of IDEO which is called Skyline Toy Design. And uh, what they do at Skyline Toy Design is it's about eight people who sit around all day and brainstorm ideas for new toys. And um, these are the failure rates from the guy who runs this, Brendan Boyle, from 1998. He says his numbers look about the same, maybe worse if you looked at them recently. Um, so for 1998, these eight people generated 4,000 ideas. Typed into a, he just typed this into a spreadsheet. 226 were developed into a nice um, a prototype or a drawing. 12 were sold. That's his definition of success. Two or three are moderate commercial successes. And, and I think venture capital probably looks about this bad, and other things look worse if you look at Big Pharma, for example. And to give you a feeling for this, this is my favorite IDEO failure, and I don't know if you can see this, but some of you may know those sort of hotel coat hangers that have a little round ball. This is a device for stealing a hotel coat hanger. Isn't that cute? <laughs> So that's Brendan, and you can commercialize that anytime you want. Um, it's an idea Brendan couldn't sell. And to give you some idea of success, I brought some. But here's um, the Aerobi football. I'm, I'm causing sound problems. And then this is my favorite thing. I have hundreds of these on my roof, I, roofs for my kids. This thing called a finger blaster. They're like foul balls. I'm going to hit the people way in the back. Oop, sorry. Let's see. So. Uh, 
if you go to, if you go to IDEO, they have lots of these. Okay, so, so that's another success, but they've had, they have to have an incredible number of failures to have that actually succeed. Okay, so that's the first point. The second principle is, um, is what I call, and I stole this from the comedian George Carlin, I figured out eventually, the vuja de mentality. This is the opposite of deja vu. So if deja vu is you have a new experience, but it feels like it's old, this is when you have an old experience and you try to look at it in a new light. And of course, as I've already said, this is a disaster in routine work, but it's one of the key things that creative groups and people and organizations do. And I'll give you two quick examples. One, and this will get you back to your basic statistics for some of you, um, is that um, there was a statistician named Abraham Wald who was sent over to England during World War II to try to reduce the number of B-17s and B-24s that were being shot down. And what he did was um, he looked to see where the holes were in the planes that were coming back, and he recommended putting more armor where there were no holes. Okay, we've got the Stanford students here. Among other people, why did he recommend putting armor where there were no holes? Oh, good. Dave, yeah. That he's got it. So Dave's got it. It's Dave Sanford right there. So anyways, so, so Dave's got it. It, it, it. That the planes that were being shot down were the ones you wouldn't see. Oh, a round of applause. We got somebody for Dave. You get first one right. Thanks. Um, it took a couple of tries for people to eat Dave, so you're doing well. Um, anyways, and, the, and so he recommended putting the armor, and you can see the places where he wasn't seeing holes following Dave's point, um, sort of between the tail and between the fuselage. Another one is, uh, is Jeff Hawkins' solution to uh, the handwriting recognition problem. Now, many of you may know, where's Tom Byers? Tom, raise your hand. One reason we have Tom as a, as a Stanford professor is he was involved in one of these pen-based computing company startups in the early, in kind of mid-90s, and it didn't make it. He's shooting the thing back at me. Good <laughs> shot, Tom. All right. Anyways, so luckily, that didn't work, so Tom's here, among other reasons. And, um, and, and one of the problems with all those startups, and Newton is another example, I mean, this almost killed Apple, too, and wasted a lot of Silicon Valley venture capital, or not wasted, spent, I shouldn't use the word wasted, um, is, is that um, there was this handwriting recognition problem, and, and I remember sort of towards the end of this era, um, being in David Kelly, the CEO of IDEO's office, and he had a whole bunch of the failed products on his office, and he said, um, you know, there's, everybody's failed, and there's one guy left named Jeff Hawkins, and Jeff Hawkins believes that, um, that he has a product that will be successful, but he has to teach um, Americans a new handwriting system. You think about that. If you're going to propose a product that requires people learning a new handwriting system, it's like such a stupid idea, it's incredible. So how many of you learned the graffiti system on the palm? Yeah, I mean, look at this. I mean, this is not like a random sample audience, but you're the target audience. And it still seems like an incredibly stupid idea to me. But, uh, but that's how he looked at it another way. Okay. So those are the big ideas um, about what it takes to have a creative organization. I'm not going to talk a huge amount, at least in my sort of formal prepared amount, uh, remarks about my weird ideas. In the handout is sort of like the two-page summary of the entire book, Weird Ideas That Work. You don't have to buy it if you just look at that, would, uh, would be one argument. Um, but the basic way that I came up with the weird ideas that work for that book was that um, I looked to see what the research evidence in theory was, and then I looked to see which ideas would enhance variation, vuja day, and breaking from the past, and I came up with a, a set of ideas and stated them in such a way that they might just be a little bit annoying or at least sound weird. 
And just to give you a feeling for them, what I'll do is I'll give you two of them to, to, so you can think about this. The first one is to encourage people to ignore and defy superiors and peers. Now this is a good illustration of the difference between the logic of routine work and creative work. If somebody is flying the airplane you're on or you're having a surgical procedure done on you, you don't want people ignoring the head surgeon or the head pilot. But if it's a situation where you want creativity, you want variation, then there's an argument that this is a way to get it. And in fact, when we look at survey research, there's um, a moderate amount of survey research that shows that, um, that when you ask, um, you ask what kind of supervisors will have the most creative work groups, they tend to be people who devote less attention to the people who work for them and let them break the rules. Conversely, when you go on to nominate, who are your most creative people? They're people who bend or break the rules and, um, and who um, ignore and defy authority, sort of like the Stanford faculty, if you want an example of a group that acts like this. So when you start going in industry, there's lots of cases, um, especially in Silicon Valley, which I know best, where creativity has been done despite rather than because of management. And one case that um, I studied actually when I first moved back to the Bay Area in 1983 was the Atari Corporation. Atari was very interesting because um, in the late 70s it was acquired by a movie company, Warner Brothers. And there were all these people who didn't know anything about the gaming industry. They acquired it and they brought in these people from the movie industry and they told the game designers to stop designing games and to design things like programs for keeping tracks of recipes. But what ended up happening was that the game designers lied to their bosses about what they were working on and would show them sort of mock-ups of programs for keeping track of recipes and balancing your checkbook and the like. And they kept designing games. And on the back of that defiance, at least for a little while until they got in other trouble, Atari was um, this enormously successful company. And if you look at the history of gaming, by the way, which always has a sort of illegitimate sort of aspect to it, and you can see this at Microsoft as well, for the um, folks who designed DirectX that makes playing games possible, very often, it's, it's something that's done in an unauthorized sort of way. Um, there, there's lots of organizations that if you start looking at creative organizations that have sort of official policies or procedures that enable this to happen, sort of management by looking the other way or management by getting out of the way. 3M's had the 15% rule for years that if you're in a technical job, you do work. 15% um, of your work doesn't have to be authorized. Amazon. 3M, now Google, all have sort of um, work practices that encourage that. And um, my favorite example from Silicon Valley history, though, comes from Chuck House. And Chuck House is this kind of interesting guy who's actually still around. He actually works for Intel now because his startup got acquired. Um, this was in about 1969, and Chuck was working on an oscilloscope and was actually told directly by David Packard himself to stop working on that dumb idea and to do something else. And what Chuck House did, it was instead of um, listening to David Packard, he said he was going on a vacation. And what he actually did was he drove around the country and got a couple million dollars worth of orders for this oscilloscope. And in 1969, a couple million dollars was real money. And the result was they made it. It was a successful product. And then in 1981, Chuck House, he got an award from David Packard, and I, I, I've forgotten exactly what it says, Extraordinary Contempt Defiance Beyond the Normal Call of Engineering. <laughs> and Tom Byers and I have seen his resume. It's on his resume. So this is the idea of sort of Packard realizing he had to encourage that kind of thing in the culture. And let me just go through one to one more, and 
I, I'll make sure and leave a good uh, 15 or so minutes for discussion. Um, but, but another one, which is one of the um, ones that's sort of more out there, is to um, not try to learn anything from people who say they've solved the problems you face. I'm a great believer in expertise, and in fact, I'll talk about that in a minute. But if you want to bring some sort of varied ideas and a different perspective in your organization, there's a good argument for bringing in ignorant people and people who know about other things because they're not biased by what's right in the industry and what the solution is. Um, and to give you one of the more famous examples, uh, you've all heard of Jane Goodall, who got famous studying chimpanzees in the wild. She was um, hired uh, by the famous anthropologist, Louis Leakey, and he trained her in field observation methods. She was a young undergraduate. And when she said to Louis Leakey, what I want to do is I want to read the literature now on chimpanzees since I'm going to be spending years of my life studying them in the wild, Louis Leakey wouldn't let her read the literature because it would bias what she saw and didn't see. So, so there are times when ignorance is very valuable, and I'm not somebody who says ignorance should be done all the time. I think that sort of ignorance and knowledge are tag team partners in life. And, and, you, and it's no accident she was um, uh, sort of linked to like this famous anthropologist. So if you look at the list in front of you, we can uh, maybe talk more about some of the weird ideas. This is just to sort of give you, if you will, uh, sort of a highlight and a perspective on this. And then the last main idea I want to talk about is something that comes more from the work that I did with my colleague Jeff Pfeffer on the knowing-doing gap. And this sort of comes from the realization that we had that in innovation and a whole bunch of other management practices, that um, we kept running into situations where people would, would seem to know what to do to make the organizations more creative, but it wouldn't actually happen. And, and they would act like talking about it was enough. They wouldn't actually have to do it. And um, the way that um, I got especially interested in this was, I guess about 10 or 11 years ago, after they made me a full professor at Stanford, and there was only so many things they could do to me, I started doing a little bit more consulting. And I actually did my first consulting job with the top management team of a Fortune 100 company, so it was a big company. And they were doing this amazing thing that was actually even worse than what the fa Stanford faculty doing, uh, do typically. And like we have like no real deliverables, we have a ridiculous amount of job security, and we, we tend to make decisions and not implement them at times. But these folks, they kept making decisions and not implementing them. And they were big decisions. One of the decisions was putting the name of their product on their product, which seems like an important thing to do. The other one more related to creativity is that their product development organization was organized into functional silos. So things like industrial design, engineering, um, design for manufacturability, marketing, things like that. And, and so they were in these functional silos and there would be these huge teams of like 70 or 80 people on every product. Every person seemed to, the definition of being on a team was you, re, you sort of returned half your emails. Um, so um, the recommendation was made, or not the recommendation, the decision was made to move to more project-based, smaller focused teams where people had 100% of their time devoted to it, or at least 50%. They kept making those decisions over and over again, and then they never actually implemented them. And I think it was no accident, by the way, that, the, that um, not all members, but many members of the senior team of this organization were populated by people who used to be management consultants. Because with all due respect to companies like McKinsey and Bain and the like, sometimes those people make good managers. But for the most part, the way you make money at McKinsey and Bain is you don't implement stuff, 
you actually just tell people to do it and hope it actually gets done when you leave. And when the clients don't do it, of course, you can blame them for not implementing it. But when you become a manager, you actually have to make sure that things get done. And of course, in a starter, if you don't do stuff, you're dead like immediately. So this, it becomes more apparent than when you're running a huge company. Um, so why does this thing happen? Why does talk substitute for action? Um, the, sort of the big reason, the headline is, is talk happens now. You can tell whether somebody's a smart talker, whether they're any good at actually turning knowledge into action is a whole other sort of thing in a different set of skill sets, a different kind of skill set. And then some organizations, especially organizations, by the way, that move people around too much, make this problem worse by simply promoting the smart talkers as opposed to the people who actually make sure that things get done. Um, so, so that's some of the major reasons it happens. And we can talk about this in detail if there's time afterwards. And let me talk about three especially important ideas for avoiding the smart talk trap. Uh, the first one is, although I'm a fan of ignorance in the right situation, I'm not a fan of ignorance in terms of putting people in senior management positions. Um, it actually turns out, and, and we actually have some um, quite interesting suggestive quantitative evidence now as well, that it actually turns out that when people understand the work they're managing, rather than having some creative, charismatic CEO comes from another industry, for the most part, it actually pays to have somebody who understands the industry and the way the organization works. And I'll give you um, two examples. One is George Zimmer in the men's warehouse. Um, George Zimmer might be sort of almost like a comical figure. You know, he's the guy who's on television. He says, I guarantee it. Um, George Zimmer is actually um, dominating with his men's warehouse organizations a declining industry. I mean, hardly anybody buys suits anymore, at least in Silicon Valley and other places they do. But, um, but in men's warehouse, it's an organization that's essentially designed to sell people things they don't want to buy and they don't want to be there. And, um, and, and on the backs of that, it's been very successful. And it's no accident that George Zimmer's father was in the clothing business. He and also invested in his initial business. Another example is, that, um, is Don Peterson at Ford Motor Company. When Don Peterson was brought in, and this was in um, the late 70s, to Ford Motor Company, they're on the verge of declaring bankruptcy. They're in enormous trouble. And as, and as Don Peterson said, they were so desperate, they put somebody in charge who actually knew something about cars. And in fact, there's a story he told my co-author, Jeff Pfeffer. So he was at his first um, top management team meeting where he was CEO. And um, after about 90 minutes, he made a comment to the top management team. He, he pointed out that nobody had used the word car or truck in the first 90 minutes. And maybe that was part of their problem. Um, and, and in fact, if you look at Ford Motor Company, it's sort of deja vu all over again. They had the same problem again. They got, brought in this guy, Jacques Nasser, who was, who was distracting him again. They got rid of Jacques Nasser. Now Bill Ford is focusing on cars again. He's a car guy, and they seem to be coming back some. So it's one of those things that's incredibly obvious that doesn't happen. And then there's the question, so what happens if you bring in a CEO or you're brought in as a leader to run an organization that you don't know anything about? Well, a good interesting case is what Bill George did at Medtronic. Bill George is one of those good to great CEOs in Jim Collins' books, book, and he, uh, he brought, I'm sure he didn't do it alone, but he brought Medtronic from a $2 billion to a $60 billion company. If you talk to Bill George, what he'll tell you is the first nine months he was CEO, since he didn't know anything about the medical device business, he spent 50% of his time watching surgeons put in Medtronic devices 
asking them questions. So we actually learn something about the way that the core part of the business work. And if you look at what usually happens with a typical sort of charismatic sort of CEO who's going to come in and turn around a company, and um, typically what they will do is they'll run around and they'll do all sorts of public speaking events. For example, we had Carly Farina here very early. It was one of our first um, events was at ETL, wasn't it? Tom signed her up before she was CEO. Um, so Carly Farina flies all over, the, all over the world giving speeches about Hewlett Packard. Now I'm going to get in trouble with Hewlett Packard, but I would submit she needs to spend a little bit more time focusing on what's going on in her company rather than uh, just flying from place to place in her jet. And many people I know at Hewlett Packard would agree with me. I'm probably going to get in trouble with Hewlett Packard now. That's okay. Um, we're, this money comes from Hewlett Packard we're sitting in right now at this building. The second notion is that simple ideas are easier to execute. Um, and Steve Jobs, another very controversial um, person in Silicon Valley, sort of interesting that when he came back and took over Apple in 1997, this is just a partial list of some of the hardware that was floating around. In fact, when I show it to Apple people who were there, they'll start listing it off. The list is actually about twice as long as this. And plus, there was a huge amount of software that was even worse. And what Jobs did in his usual subtle fashion was within one year, since, as the question said, they said customers couldn't figure out the difference between like a Performa 6500 or a 4300. They couldn't even tell their friends which one to buy. Within one year, he got rid of everything and went to a simple two by two, which is laptop, desktop, home office. They've more or less followed ever since. And, and this is also, this is a footnote, but this is also a result of having an organization where there's a bunch of coalitions that have medium power. That was one of the problems uh, at Apple, especially during the Scully days. Um, and to some extent, Gil Emilio, he had a bunch of sort of medium power coalitions so everybody could sort of get part of what they wanted instead of having a whole strategy. Um, and then the last point, um, we talk a lot about charisma and how important exciting CEO, charismatic CEOs are. It isn't just Jim Collins' book. There's other research that suggests that having an exciting, charismatic CEO, although helpful at times, at least for short-term gains, is not always all that it's cracked up to be. Um, and I'm going to quote my colleague, Charles O'Reilly. Charles O'Reilly has this argument that, um, that smart leaders are exciting because they're always talking about different ideas. They talk about um, every new idea they seem, they're always exciting because they always have a new idea. But his argument is that wise leaders are boring because they say the same thing over and over and over again until it's done. Um, Jack Welch is somebody who had a lot of ideas I actually don't like and I could show you empirically were actually probably wrong. But one thing Jack Welch was good about doing was making very clear to his people that we're just going to do a few things and we're do them till they're done. And when um, Jeff Effer and I were doing research for our book, The Knowing Doing Gap, we interviewed a guy named Jim Bailey, who was head of the quality movement at then Citibank, it's now Citigroup. And um, Jim Bailey was complaining that the reason they're having so much trouble getting traction in their quality movement was that they weren't focusing enough attention on us. And this comes straight from an interview that we um, did with him. And, and you can sort of look at the list that at Citibank at that time, you get certified for, um, in quality um, for five days of training. At GE, it would take six weeks. If you look at um, some of the rewards and promotion, at General Electric, you did 40% of your compensation was tied to hitting your quality goals, and you didn't get a promotion unless you hit your quality goals. And at, um, at Citibank, it was completely unclear about the link. And finally, the thing he was complaining about the most is he couldn't get John Reed and other senior executives 
to do symbolic things like teaching quality classes to show it mattered, whereas Jack Welch and other senior executives were constantly at Crotonville, their executive ed facility, actually teaching it. And you can, and sort of the lesson here also, as, as sort of an ending point, if you talk, think about smart talk and smart action, the speed at which smart talk can happen is incredibly fast. I'm a professor. I can like, spew out all sorts of management um, practices. But when you look at the speed at which organizational change, including in a startup, can happen, it's going to happen a lot slower. And I think that was one of the problems that we had during the dot-com boom. During the dot-com boom, the, the talk and often the misinformation was going at an incredible rate, but the action could only happen so fast. In fact, um, I was just talking to Mr. Lee about a mutual friend of ours, Jorge Del Calvo, and I, he's, he's a local lawyer, and Jorge um, told me this great line during the height of the dot-com boom, which was that his definition of a dot-com CEO was the same as Mark Twain's definition of a gold mine, which is that, if you remember that definition, that it was uh, a gold mine is a hole in the ground with a liar sitting on top of it. And uh, I think we were getting a lot of that sort of smart talk sort of stuff. Um, anyhow, and, and, uh, and we sort of figured out, I think it was the holes in the grounds that didn't have liars sitting on top of them um, that, uh, that, that we're still sort of left with. Okay, so two quick parting thoughts, and then we'll have 15 minutes for you guys to ask questions and react. The first one, and this is like the entrepreneurial thought leaders, and you bring in all these venture capitalists and CEOs in this, and people are constantly going to tell you about all the stuff they did to make things happen. And I've also pushed on some of this mythology by talking about Steve Jobs quickly reorganizing Apple and the like. One of the things that gets very clear if you look at research on what it takes for creative work to happen, there's a lot of evidence that the things that managers typically do, especially if they have MBAs, asking a lot of questions, um, asking what your deliverables are, asking what your value added is, all that classic sort of stuff, um, those things tend to drive out creativity and what they do is they lean people to drift towards what they know is going to succeed. So in the case, especially when it comes to managing creative work, the question of first do no harm is a standard that especially needs to be applied. And um, I would like to see the evidence. We don't have it for startups, but I wonder whether active um, boards actually really help. But I think that active boards do in startups is they replace the CEO a lot and they bring a CEO into the same situation who faces the same set of problems. That's a personal opinion, but uh, I, I would bet the evidence on it. And to give you my favorite quote from somebody who's managed a lot of creative work that's in this spirit, Bill this is Bill Coyne, after you plant a seed in the ground, you don't dig it up every week to see how it's doing. And this is a guy who managed R&D at 3M for about 15 years. He said that much of his job was just leaving his folks alone and protecting them from the people in organizational strategy. He said that was a lot of what his job was. Um, then as a final point, um, and especially since we're in the engineering schools, engineering, engineers actually don't like to talk about marketing. They have this sort of notion that if I design something brilliant, everybody's just going to buy it. Um, it actually turns out, if you look at the history of famous creators, create famous inventors, there's almost always somebody involved who can sell. Um, we already mentioned Steve Jobs. Clearly, he can sell. If you look at the case of the steamboat, um, one of the biggest misconceptions in history is that this guy named Robert Fulton invented it. In fact, there were many steamboats around at the time that um, Robert Fulton had his steamboat, which was the turn of the, it's the 19th century. And, um, and, and a lot of them were technically superior to his, 
but he was the guy who could sell. And it's no accident we remember him as the inventor. Thomas Edison, uh, my, uh, my former doctoral student Andy Hargadon has done a lot of work on Thomas Edison. He can show you extensive quotes of people in Thomas Edison's lab complaining that he was a really lousy inventor and he was more like P.T. Barnum than anybody else. He was great at attracting press attention for Edison um, products and also for um, bringing in money, but he actually was not that great an inventor. And, um, and, and that's one of those sort of notions that I think is sometimes hard for engineers to accept, although not hard for MBAs to accept, the notion that marketing actually matters. Okay, so we've got, that's sort of the end of my prepared remarks. We've got about 15 minutes. Any reactions? You've got the weird ideas there and maybe you have some other more general sort of comments. Yes, sir. Please use the mic. Are you, do you work for HP? Am I going to get in trouble? Uh, no, but uh, the HP people I work with uh, would, uh, would make sure all the microphones are turned off and then agree. <laughs> uh, the inventor of the Furby, or the couple that invented the Furby, uh, spent at least part of their time. They moved there to raise their kids. And he, Caleb Chung got his start uh, working for me. It's hard for me to hear you. Uh, talk uh, a little further away from the microphone. A little talk farther louder. away. How's this? Perfect. Okay. Uh, he's, uh, but he worked for uh, Mattel, and they had a building where apparently they locked everybody in on a floor, threw all sorts of crazy people together. He shared a de He was a stand-up comic who shared a desk with a, a semiconductor physicist, uh, and they threw in a linguist, uh, a guy with a PhD in linguistics, uh -huh. uh, in this. Which all turned out to play into, if you know the Furby story and how a Furbies work, you can sort of understand how this went. But basically, they locked him in, said they could, they let him out at the end of, you know, come in at eight, lock him in until five, and they had to come up with as many good ideas as they as they could. And it, you know, it fits this model tremendously. Well, I mean, that's a fabulous story, and as a sort of a footnote, so 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 the comment here, I, I guess you all heard it, is that the way the Furby was designed is they locked. So what was it? A, um, a stand-up comic. Well, Caleb is a, is a stand-up comic. His wife was uh, an industrial designer and the same one. Uh, and basically, that when he went out on his own, they started uh, working on this, that he, he knew he had to have the chip that would work for the Furby. But mm -hmm. they couldn't have an expensive chip. But they needed the linguist because the chip didn't have a lot of uh, ability to res uh, do resolution of the sound. They had to find out the right sounds, that, the right uh, phonemes that would work. So they had a list of phonemes that the computer chip could understand. Mm -hmm. Then they designed the, lang the Furby language so they could communicate uh, sitting around a table with a whole lot of wine. So, so these ideas, this is sort of like the notion of skunk works. You lock people away and, and you sort of protect them from sort of lack of people who might not be so wise from a corporate perspective. And then you commercialize it. But there's another part to this which I think is important to emphasize, that organizations that rely heavily on things like skunk works and isolations, isolation, it only works when there's some way to get the ideas into the mainstream of the corporate idea. So you've got to isolate them, and you've got to have some way to sort of pull the ideas out, or it doesn't happen. Uh, well, the Furby ended up uh, actually being done outside of it. They didn't go with that idea, and they ended up with Tiger. Ah. And most of Tiger's management that he dealt with are not designers, but lawyers. Hmm. Defending IP is their, their business. Huh. Okay, some other... In the back, I'll try to... So you mentioned that some companies like Google allow their employees to allocate a certain amount, a certain percentage of their time towards, say, innovative ideas or creative projects. Um, is this, are you an advocate of that, and do you recommend all companies to pursue that model? Well, I, I think that any, so, so I think that, I mean, the goal is to have some way to have variation that, that management kind of doesn't know about. 
because I don't believe that management necessarily has superior knowledge. And um, there are lots of companies that actually do it. But note, we're talking about situations where people are doing creative work. Anything that's doing routine, like I, I don't really understand the value of allowing somebody who is like, like an engineer who is trying to, um, a quality engineer to do that. There might be some value, but we're talking about more sort of like extreme creative work. Um, the other thing is that that's the kind of thing that may not fit into some company cultures. And some other things are necessary. And in fact, um, I think the argument that um, a lot of creativity happens despite rather than because of ma management in organizations, they're sort of like um, an underground culture is one of those things that keeps many organizations going. And I'll give you an example. Some years ago, we had um, this huge German engineering company called Siemens. Siemens um, spent a lot of money in executive education here. I think they probably wasted the money. We could, that's a whole other story. But, um, but they told me when I was talking about this sort of things that Siemens, there was something known in the culture as a submarine project. And the way that many innovations happened at Siemens was that you would get an idea, you'd find a senior manager to support it or get to some resources, and you'd go underground and tell nobody you were working on it or actually go beneath the surface. And if you came up with nothing, you would die underneath the surface and not tell anybody. But, but if you came up with something that worked, you would um, find either your original supporter or another one, and they would take credit for it. So it looked like they had this really high success rate when they actually didn't. Um, and sort of um, the, the, the Atari story is another one of those. So that's one of the things that happens, and I think that makes engineering and other technical companies great, is sometimes they do great things despite rather than because of management. And when management won't support it, they spin out and do a startup, of course. That's the way that many startups have happened around here, is people do work on company time. Either they don't tell their manager, or hopefully at least they tell them because they're supposed to. And uh, the, they say no when they go and start a company. Um, other comments or questions? Yes? Yeah. And their quality program, the way they did it. But earlier you talked about the people at GE actually ignored the quality program to be creative. So are you an advocate of managing the paradox and contradiction? Well, I don't know whether it's paradox or contradiction. Um, to me, I, you know, the word, at one point in my life I spent a huge amount of time trying to figure out what the word paradox meant, and I got so confused I don't use that word anymore. But, but the fact is, the fact is that to have an organization um, both make money in the short term and, um, and have innovative ideas in the long run, they've got to do something that looks like hypocrisy, which, which is that in the case of General Electric, a lot of the businesses and a lot of the parts of General Electric are doing the same thing over and over again. Manufacturing, providing, providing services with having zero defects. You want that. Every time that, that you deal with um, General, uh, General Electric sort of service, you don't want to have a different experience. So the question is separating the two but the problem that General Electric had was they were trying to Six Sigma creative work. And zero defects and driving out variation I don't think works very well. But for the most part, I mean, go back to sort of the ratio of the typical company like Procter & Gamble that spends 3% of its budget on R&D. Most of what Procter & Gamble does and should do should be to make products so that every tooth, um, Crest toothpaste, we want it to be exactly the same. So it depends what you're doing. So I don't know about the word paradox, maybe contradiction or hypocrisy I'm more comfortable with. But we could have a conversation about how confused I am about the word paradox at some point. Um, yes, who else? The front row, yes. I shouldn't.
Well, there's two parts to that question. The first one is, I think, ad addressed in some of my talk about, so what if you want to have a creative culture? Uh, there's a lot of the ideas on your list. The single most important sort of diagnostic question I would use if you want to have a creative culture is what happens when people fail. If, if, if failures are okay, that's probably the single most important one. Um, now, the other question you ask is one I don't know the answer to, and um, at this point, I don't believe anybody knows the answer to, which is trying to figure out which new creative ideas are good versus bad. Um, I've actually had a couple of doctoral students try to figure out what works. So these things called gate systems. Um, the only people who will make really strong arguments that gate systems work are people who either um, sell them from management firms or in organizations whose jobs depend on them. If you actually started look, trying to find evidence about ways to reduce the failure rate in innovation, it's very hard to find ways that actually work. Otherwise, you wouldn't have companies like Kleiner Perkins and Excel having such high failure rates and such high um, failure rates in new product introduction. And the fact that most companies die, it just wouldn't happen. But there is one thing you can do, and it's one of the weird ideas. There's an argument that once you fund something, what you should do, so, so there's all this stuff you're trying to decide what to do, and then you'll pick like one thing. Um, the argument is at that point you should delude yourself and everybody else into believing it's going to be successful because there's this thing called the self-fulfilling prophecy and it actually turns out that that works. It also increases the um, probability you'll throw good money after bad. It's got a negative underbelly. Um, so, but, but if you can figure out the magical way to figure out which products, which startups, um, which new ideas are going to be successful and which aren't, I want to talk to you because I, I, my bet at this point is it's a nearly a random process. Some things help, having prestigious backers, having money, all that sort of stuff helps, having belief. But actually figuring out which ideas are right or wrong is very tough. Yes? Um, to continue that, good versus bad, um, uh -huh. so who do you run these weird ideas by? Um, who? who do you run the great ideas by? Well, you know, there's a lot of controversy about, you know, so try to figure out which ones are good versus bad. Well, well I mean, well, I mean, that's one of those questions. It just depends on the nature of the industry. But I'll give you an example of, of the one group I don't trust versus one I trust a little bit more, which is that um, if you start using something like focus groups, especially if it's a new sort of more radical innovation people have never seen, they're not very valuable, I would, um, um, this notion of going directly where users are actually operating is probably a good idea. And the other thing that you want to be careful of is selling ideas to managers who manage work they don't understand. And I'm going to get in trouble with this as well. Um, if you look at the fate of most enterprise software that's implemented, the average implementation fails. And typically, it's sold to an IT department with no um, discussion with the users at all. And at Stanford, we're having this horrible Oracle implementation right now. It is absolutely horrible. And Stanford systematically ignored the, the role of users in it. So, so that's like sort of one pathway, but I mean, there's ideas and ways to increase your odds of success, but for the most part, I think innovation is a business that's fraught with failure, and you've got to accept that. We have time. A couple more questions. Uh, somebody in the back. Um, research and university. Well, it is interesting. Well, one implication, and we certainly know this is that uh, most of the money spent on research in universities doesn't lead to any new commercially viable product, um, products, although maybe a lot of good academic careers, which we like to have. 
But um, enough of that stuff succeeds that it keeps the whole engine running. So, I mean, the alternative is for any one project in the School of Engineering, for that one particular project, it's not a rational decision to fund it or to go forward, but for sort of the, the good of the system as a whole, and it's a good idea to move forward. And in fact, um, it is sort of an odd thing about innovation, which what it does, and this is sort of um, probably uh, something to say in ETL is going to get me in trouble, what you're doing is you're largely enticing people into a situation where they're going to fail um, to support a larger system where people hold a large portfolio succeed. And I, and I think if you look at the numbers, it pretty much supports that. So, I mean, so how many people had to write business plans, uh, go give pitches at Kleiner Perkins, um, go start businesses. You know, on the backs of that, what did it take to have Google be successful? We talk about Google's success, but there's a lot of people who threw themselves against the wall who did not succeed. But on the backs of that, we have, we have like enough successful companies to keep the whole thing going. So, and, and I think that's basically what the numbers show. And it is interesting, the degree to which we misremember failures. We never seem to want to talk about them. Uh, yeah. Just a quick anecdote in, in support of your argument that it really is good to honor failure. I was there during the 80s and 90s, uh -huh. and, and I, I can remember as if it was yesterday when we created this lighting product, which um, was a terrific product, great technology, except it costs more than any person would buy, like 10 or 15 bucks, and how many are you going to uh -huh. throw into your shopping basket? So the project was killed, and Jack said to the guy who ran lighting in Cleveland, mm -hmm. a multi-million dollar business, a very important business person in his own right, that he was going to measure him on how well he treated the team. He not only didn't want them punished for this failure, which cost us a few million dollars, he wanted them to be promoted, and he wanted them to be seen to be promoted in order to encourage people to get out of the bureaucracy and the way of and the groupthink that companies like GE normally have. So, so that's like a fabulous testimonial. And so, so Jack Welch could do innovation, I guess, guess too. Although, although I don't think Six Sigma applies to that at all. He never applies Six Sigma to that. That's well, that's, uh, that's fabulous. I mean, another example of this is I've been doing a little work with the Hearst Corporation, which run, owns all these newspapers and magazines and TV stations. And there was a woman who started a new magazine that failed. And uh, the, the CEO of Hearst wanted to encourage creativity. So what he did was he promoted her and told everybody why. So it's sort of consistent with sort of uh, Jack's approach. Jack Welch's. That's a great testimony. I, I'm always looking for those. Yes. Um, Last question. Do you feel innovation practices are where it could be at the university level? Where, where, who's asking that? Oh, I am. Oh, sorry. Right here. Um, do you feel um, innovation practices are where they could be at the university level? And if not, what is the knowing-doing gap here? Well, well certainly, the, so the question is, like, how good or bad are we at, at Stanford? And um, I will be mum on other parts of the university. But um, one thing I will say that I guess the School of Engineering could be more innovative. But um, this is a place that actually encourages incredible risk-taking. And so there's been three initiatives I've been involved in in the last seven or eight years. Uh, the first one was the Center for Work Technology and Organization. John Hennessy gave us what he called venture capital money to start it. Uh, um, Stanford Technology Ventures Program, which is really a pretty wacky program that Tom and Tina are running here. Um, it looks like a high-risk adventure. And then finally, some of you may know I'm involved in something that's called the D School or the Design School that David Kelly is leading, which again is the kind of, so basically in the case of David Kelly, we've got somebody who's got no PhD and does no research um, and has no doctoral students, 
but uh, they made him a full professor and gave him an endowed chair and are having him lead this design school thing because they think it's the right thing for the school to do. So I'm sure the School of Engineering has parts of it that stifle innovation, but uh, compared to other parts I know of in academia, it's pretty good. Uh, the other place that's actually surprisingly good, I hate to say something good about um, you know, Harvard, Harvard Business School under Kim Clark is pretty good about trying some pretty weird stuff. So, uh, so I hate to give them credit, but I would give them credit as well. But it's, it's not perfect anywhere, but it's, it's not bad. Um, and I'm done, right, Josh? Yep. All right. Thank you guys very much. I got back. Yeah, we Thanks. So on behalf of Basis and SNFK, I'd like to thank you for speaking today. Oh, thank you. I didn't realize you got a little trophy thing. Thank, thank you. you. All right. Thank you.